0: The Jewish Views on the Chief Rabbi's visit to India. We hear from one of the charities he's been meeting with whilst there. The Hidden Freud, who knew about Sigmund's Hasidic roots. And we speak to Hertfordshire's Young Entrepreneur of the Year.
1: But first, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Philip Chrysakas. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, has been on a ten-day visit to India. During his time there, Rabbi Mervis visited various projects and slums of Kolkata. He told Jews on the subcontinent he will help battle against hunger, illiteracy and unemployment. The Jewish population of India is diminishing, and the country only has two operating synagogues that cater to the ever-shrinking community. In Israel, a gunman's opened fire at a popular bar in Tel Aviv. Two people died while seven others were injured. CCTV footage shows the suspect taking the weapon out of his backpack and shooting. It follows a wave of Palestinian attacks against Israelis in recent months. French President François Hollande has marked the first anniversary of the 17 people killed in the first round of Islamic extremist attacks on the country. Last January, victims of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, the hyper kosher supermarket and a police officer were shot by gunmen. France remains under a state of emergency. Following November's Paris attacks, that killed 130 people. JCOS has become the latest Jewish secondary school in London to announce its GCSE students will study Islam. Manuel College and JFS have already agreed to do the same. Last month, Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis called on Jewish schools to teach Islamic studies after new government guidance suggested religious schools teach at least two religions. And finally, Prince Charles will succeed his mother as the patron of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. The Prince has a long-standing relationship with the community. The Queen's held the position since the organisation was founded ten years ago. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport.
2: Thanks, Philip. The Jewish Football League resumes on Sunday morning, with the pick of the Games being the all-Premier Division Cyril Aniston Cup quarter-final tie between Hendon and Redbridge. In the league, the top three teams in Division One all face winnable games, while all 12 of the Division Two sides are in action, with leader Scrabble looking to make it 11 wins from 11 when they take on North London Raiders. Elsewhere, Malaysia could be banned from hosting World Future table tennis events if they fail to issue visas to Israeli players for next month's World Team Championships. The warning from the International Tables Tennis Federation comes after Israeli sailors weren't able to compete in last month's Youth Sailing World Championships in the country which this week led to the Royal Yachting Association releasing a statement, urging for an investigation to be carried out into the situation. And finally, Guy Asulin, who was touted as being the Israeli Messi, has signed an 18-month contract with Hapoel El Tel Aviv. The 24-year-old had previously trained alongside the real Messi, as well as Letan Ibrahimovic, Carlos Tevez, Sergio Aguero and Yaya Torre, during trials at both Barcelona and Manchester City.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Well, welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start as we always do with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is the editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Warfish. Welcome to you both. Richard, I think we should start off with... well. I mean, it's a story that you heard just now on the news with Philip, but it's quite a big story all the same, isn't it? The one year anniversary from the first round of terror attacks in France.
3: Yeah, the Bataclan attacks and the attacks elsewhere in Paris on November the 13th are obviously front and centre of our minds still. But of course, last year began horrifically with the attacks at Charlie Hebdo and the Paris kosher supermarket. The hyper shaped kosher supermarket attack took place exactly a year ago. We mark it this very weekend. On the front page of the Jewish News, we've done an interview with one of the relations of Johan Cohen, one of the four people to have died at the supermarket. It's a very raw and heart-rending piece in which she describes how the family has literally been torn apart in the subsequent year. Members of the family have moved to Israel, other members of the family have had emotional and mental problems. These sort of things we we, we suffer almost with the families and the victims at the time, but then obviously we can get on with our own lives and emotionally we can kind of find some sort of stability. But I think this sort of hard-hitting, raw emotion that comes across in our front page feature today kind of emphasises that these people never get over this sort of tragedy.
0: Well, I was going to say, I I think that it's more a case of the likes of us and uh, others listening can absorb what we've heard to some degree in terms of the story, take it on board after a little bit of time. But then we get on with our lives and there are people whose lives will never be the same again because of instances like this.
3: And I think that that's what we sometimes forget quite easily, don't we? Mm. This man was a, a hero. He was the first to die in the supermarket the lady that we interviewed said that he actually tried to clasp hold of one of the weapons of the killer and prevent this tragedy from ever happening unfortunately it ended in tragedy for him and then for three other people as well so the man was only 20 years old he was a student at the time working part-time in the supermarket woke up that morning not expecting uh, any of what transpired to have taken place and now we remember him a year later
0: And there does seem to be almost this effect of a mass exodus to Israel, doesn't there, as a result of it? A lot of French Jews have left France over the last year as a result of obviously not one but two terrorist
4: attacks.
5: Yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning that Rachel Boulia, she also narrowly avoided a terror attack herself. She actually bought tickets to the concert at the Bataclan and it was at the last minute her son wasn't very well and they decided not to go. So having lost her cousin at the Hypercache shootings she herself and her son could have potentially have also been killed at the Bataclan. Imagine you know the impact on the family in that way as well. I think it's also worth mentioning that a year on these dreadful events haven't just rocked Paris. They continue to reverberate around the world. And while we have got on with our lives in the UK, I would say that people are a bit more on edge, a bit more alert, There's definitely been a sort of a feeling of trying to increase security at synagogues and schools. And there is a feeling that we're not quite safe.
3: We are a lot safer than the French Jewish community and other Jewish communities on the continent, for very simple reasons that we're an island, that the Muslim community here is not violently opposed to the Jewish community as they are in some parts of Europe. And the sense I get, what we got putting this article together is this woman, as you said, she, she, by a, a freaking obscene coincidence, was going to go to the Bata clan just months after losing her cousin at the Hypercache. I mean, what must she be feeling when she steps out the door? She ends the piece saying, I'm very scared of everything now. You can't go on living like this. You can't believe that you can go out and just be killed just because you are Jewish. I thought this would never happen again after the Holocaust. Yet here we are. This woman and the community she is in are living a nightmare. When is the next attack? Everyone's breath is just being held for that moment.
0: Well, it is definitely, unfortunately, one that we need to watch with trepidation, anticipation, and I suppose just stay vigilant wherever you are in the world. OK, well, let's try and move on to something hopefully a little lighter in discussion, and that is that there is a new programme on Channel 4 known as Deutschland 83. And Fran, I believe that you have been speaking to the person behind it.
5: Yes, Anna Winger. She is an American Jewish writer, has a very sort of interesting upbringing. She is American-British, lived all over the world. She's now living in Berlin. That in itself is very interesting. And she has now written a Cold War 3 called Deutschland 83. She wrote the series in English, but they actually shot the whole thing in German, so it is with subtitles. It was actually the first German language drama to air in the US, and it was held by critics, you know, for being engrossing and slick. So there is the hope that it will do very well here as well and it basically follows Martin Rauch, a 24-year-old East German native who's recruited by his aunt Lenora to go over the wall and go into the West and become an undercover spy for the Stasi. It's set in the 80s, there's lots of nostalgia for people who knew the 80s well, the music's great. And it gives you a real insight into really the divide between East Germany and West Germany for those who can remember it. And those who were born after that era, I mean, for them, this must seem so foreign that that used to be the way things were, that we had this Cold War. But there it was in Germany.
0: Yeah. So any one of those carrying around an old fashioned iPod known as a ghetto blaster or what have you. Right. There's certainly be blown away by that of course other mp3 players are available
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect yeah. tonic for those suffering like I am from uh, um, homeland withdrawal symptoms because it's on at the same time on channel 4 on the same day the week after the uh, last series ended it's very exciting it's real kind of edgy your seat sort of stuff spy drama at the height of the cold war when obviously nuclear proliferation was at its height and we were worried that it was going to end in world war 3 so seeing that and there's also some, some great lighter moments aren't there some kind of dark dark humour and you get a sense from the other side because you're looking from the communist side looking west rather from west looking east so it's quite interesting to kind of see the cold war through different perspective
5: yeah and it is also uh, deeply seated in what really went on because actually just by coincidence at the time that winger was writing this lots of documents were actually declassified for the first time relating to Operation Able Archer.
0: And to those of us who might not remember, what was Operation Able Archer?
5: Operation Able Archer was actually the war exercise. And it was so realistic. It involved the movement of 40,000 troops, US and NATO troops across Western Europe. It was so realistic the Kremlin actually thought it was all real and they were about to press the button. So some historians say that we were actually closer to nuclear war at that time than the Cuban Missile Crisis
0: goodness so deutschland 83 that's definitely one to look out for and finally i think we've got time for one more now let's move over i suppose to uh, another aspect of germany mein kampf has been republished
3: yeah interesting one this it's been rumbling on for a number of years and now this week for the first time since the death of its author Mein Kampf has been republished now that it's out of copyright. What was the German government meant to do? Obviously, Mein Kampf it's uh, illegal to publish and distribute for obvious anti-Nazi reasons. In Germany and now the German government had this decision to make. Do they allow it openly to be published and used and read by anyone or do they take it in, take more control over it publish an academic, annotated scholarly version that kind of puts this sort of poison in its place explains it quite thoroughly and thoughtfully for the next generation and repackage this hate in a way that perhaps its legacy can be one of positivity rather than one of poison and that's what it's done. It couldn't have banned the thing it would have faced in Issues of state sanctioning and all sorts of freedom of speech issues. So I think it did the right thing. It's all about how the book is read rather than the book itself I mean I don't know if anybody any of our listeners have actually waded through all 700 pages I've, I've read a few pages myself and that was my struggle and it was very very hard to wade through that sort of nonsense and it is very very disjointed he was as good at writing as he was as, as an artist I mean which gives you a sense of the, the power of the prose uh, but what it stands for obviously is the darkest time in, in human history and where it led with, was the gates of Auschwitz so it's place in history is assured and I think the German government's done right to republish it this week.
5: 2016 is also an interesting year in that, while Mein Kampf has been republished, we'll also see the year when the copyright on Anne Frank's diary is also up. So Mein Kampf, which you know obviously led to this the terrible genocide of six million Jews, and you know side by side with that, we have one of the victims of that genocide and her writing. So it's, I think it's a very sort of interesting comparison. And, you know, I think 2016, we'll see a lot of these kind of memoirs actually coming out of copyright now. Like Richard said, I don't think there's anything wrong at all, really, in republishing Mein Kampf. I think as a sort of scholarly exercise to try and learn lessons for the future, this is the best way forward, rather than keeping it as be.
0: Well, a very poignant year, I'm sure, one way or another, but that's all we have time for for this week, so thank you to you both. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News, though, every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've been hearing earlier on in the programme, the Chief Rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, has been on an official visit to India. He says more needs to be done to help those in poverty, and also said that he feels the pain and suffering of the poor. Well, there are organisations out there who are doing more. I've been speaking to Jude Williams, who's the chief executive from Tzedek, one of the organisations Rabbi Mervis met with whilst in India. I started by asking Jude to give us the exact definition of extreme poverty.
6: Extreme poverty is defined by the World Bank as those people who live on less than a $1.25 a day. And actually that's just shifted and it might well be a $1.85 a day. So we're talking about around a pound in order to be able to pay for all of the necessities, everything from shelter, housing, food, travel, education and more. So we're talking about 1.2 billion people in the world.
0: That sounds like an impossible task to be able to live on a pound a day. So what kind of lives would someone trying to live on a pound a day be going through? What would their situation be?
6: There's a certain, obviously, very basic nature to life in terms of, say, food. There may be one or two meals a day, and those would be very basic types of foods and grain foods, um, very monotonous. And I think we'd find it, we'd struggle to, to eat that kind of food. It may well be precarious housing or housing that is really inadequate in terms of size or in order to be able to uh, deal with the weather conditions. But possibly the, the most difficult part of this is when emergencies happen because you might be able to get through on a day-to-day basis but should there be a medical problem with say one of the children or with one of the adults then the family falls into crisis and very often into severe debt and that's really the precarious nature or the fragility of life when you're in extreme poverty
0: so the project itself does it focus on any particular country any particular region obviously that we know based on chief rabbi's visit that sedek is based in india but do you just focus on India or anywhere?
6: Actually, we focused on a number of countries and work with local partners in various places. India, a couple of different regions in India, but also in Ghana and Uganda in Kenya, in Malawi and various countries in Africa. In India, we've had a long relationship with a number of projects and ERDS, which the Chief Rabbi visited, is one of the projects that we've had a relationship with for about six years now.
0: And just remind us who ERDS is.
6: So ERDS is, the Economic Rural Development Society established in 1982 and run by a wonderful man called Madhu Basu who basically saw the need of local rural communities and set up a few different types of projects one of those around sort of microfinance and that's what we were supporting him with and help with vocational training. How
0: important is it so that the chief rabbi obviously has just been to try and highlight extreme poverty as I just said in particular in India how important would you say it is? the chief getting on board as it were and raising awareness for the day-to-day plights that some people less fortunate than ourselves have to go through.
6: The Chief Rabbi has said right at the beginning of his time as Chief Rabbi that social responsibility was really important to him and that he wanted to make sure that the Jewish community was outward-looking and that had an opportunity to engage with the outer wider world and some of the global issues. So this visit really is that moment of being able to say he is there, he is seeing it, he is able to see it for himself and understand how change happens, but also the kind of contribution that the Jewish community is already making.
0: And I think that we can tell by sort of looking at photos and sort of some of the quotes that's come from him over the past week that he's been deeply moved by what he's seen and has, as I suppose, has been spurred on to do even more than he's already doing. So I, I'm guessing that's the kind of reaction you're hoping will trigger within members of the community as well.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think any of us who, who've who been out and seen the work that happens in developing countries, the word that always comes to mind is this is amazing, this is inspiring. Because what one doesn't find is sort of real desperation. What you end up seeing is people working really hard and being very enthusiastic and really making the most of the funding and the contribution that they are being given. I think this all fits in with certainly our ethos at SEDEC, but also I think a Jewish ethos that according to Maimonides we should help people help themselves and that's what the rabbi would have seen is people working really hard to help themselves out of poverty so I'm hoping that that message is going to come back and that uh, two things really one that the Jewish community can feel really proud of the kind of contribution it's making already the Jewish community worldwide because the rabbi would have seen Calcutta Hope run by Steve Darby a, a Jewish guy who's energising the Jewish community around that work also Mumbai, the Gabriel Mumbai project run by an Israeli so another contribution that's happening, and then also Sedex work as well. So in many places, in, in many ways, the Jewish community globally is working. And so I hope we can all feel proud about that. And I think the Chief Rabbi definitely feels proud about that. And on the other hand, we can do more.
0: And technically speaking, it all falls into that category of tikkun olam, doesn't it, making the world a better place. So how has the community's efforts made areas such as the parts of India that have been referred to and viewed and visited by the chief rabbi? How have they been improved from the contribution that SEDEC, Calcutta Hope and other charities have done?
6: I said at the beginning that the the figure is something like a billion people. So one one in seven people on earth are living in extreme poverty. That's absolutely huge. And in some ways, one feels overwhelmed by that kind of figure. So we all need to play a part and SEDEC along with other charities is playing a part so the kind of contribution that we're making say for SEDEC is helping about 1500 people help themselves out of poverty each year through projects like ERDS. We also have another project where we're helping something like 18,000 school children every year get a better education because we all know that education can break the cycle of poverty as well. Those are the kind of numbers we're talking about and of course we can then break it down into individual projects. And individual people. And how are they being helped? Well, very practically, the ERDS projects will give young people sort of 15 to 25 skills. They might have had a basic education, they might have had to leave education very early for because of family circumstances and so forth, and very often without skills. So giving them some sort of vocational training, some IT skills or mechanical training or hairdressing or some basket weaving, it might be all sorts, that can actually give them a sustainable income. So we can move down from the bigger numbers to the individual stories and see real change for real people. But most importantly, so many of these projects are sustainable that means that the change is lifelong
0: in a time when we're living economically speaking where people are feeling the pinch maybe it's not as bad as it was in recent years but still people are recovering slowly but surely and they sometimes do feel a bit sorry for themselves thinking that things are a bit expensive over here and really need to watch the old pennies do you think that people would change their attitudes if they'd seen what you seen, as it were
6: Absolutely and I really hope that the Chief Rabbi comes back with that kind of message of we really do have an obligation. We cannot only look after ourselves and our own community and Israel. We need to widen the sense of responsibility and we need to make sure that that 10% of tzedakah that we give, we give a proportion outside of Jewish concerns and the Jewish agendas because we as Jews should be part of making the world a better place and because it's the right thing to do.
0: Do you think that you can understand why people might feel more obliged to say, well, hang on, I'm all right, so therefore, why should it be my problem? What What would you say to someone like that?
6: I think one, let's go and see, right? That's, that, that's the first thing. Like really maybe understand, you know, part of this situation. We live in an interdependent world. The, you know, the jeans that I wear are made in five different countries and many of the people who made parts of those jeans are living in extreme poverty in different countries. We do have a relationship, a responsibility to people way, way far away from us. And that might not have been true a number of years ago, where our neighbor, the other person, was really living next door or in the next town. Now, actually, we need to interpret those Jewish texts, the the neighbor, the the other town person and so forth, as actually somebody living in Bangladesh or India or Ghana and so forth. So we, we do have a traditional responsibility. I think learn, like see, learn, open your eyes, feel some compassion. what other people are going through and I think also understand that people aren't in poverty because they want to be it's circumstantial it's man-made and people are incredibly resourceful or let's say as resourceful as hard-working as ambitious as the rest of us but of course the access to funds or the access to resources is completely limited and we can play a part in changing that
0: sum up in one line sedex ultimate goal what would you say
6: I want every Jew in Britain to have a lifelong commitment to reducing poverty and take that commitment from their Jewish tradition.
0: And how do people get more information?
6: Please go to the website www.sedec.org.uk and be in touch. We'd love you to donate, to fundraise or volunteer with us.
0: Jude Williams, the chief executive of Tzedek, talking to me there about the work her organisation does to help those around the world affected by poverty. This following the official visit from Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis this week to India you're listening to the jewish views in association with the jewish news still to come on this edition clive roslin will be here for our jewish schmooze today clive and adam will be joined by volunteers andy lucas and liz Hirschhorn. they'll be discussing tikkun olam or making the world a better place plus diana toman will be speaking to james Morganstern, the hertfordshire young entrepreneur of the year Now, there are very few people who haven't heard of Sigmund Freud. Author Dr. Joseph Burke has written a book about Freud's Jewish roots. Hasidic, to be precise. It demonstrates the input of the Jewish mystical tradition into Western culture via psychoanalysis. Yes, I wasn't quite sure what that meant either. Luckily, entertainment reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us by speaking to Joseph, and she started by asking him to tell us a bit about his line of work.
7: Well, a psychotherapist is a person who uses a talking cure, so to speak, to help people who are in distress. A psychoanalyst is a person who trained in the Psychoanalytic Institute. I call myself a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, which means I, I inform my work as a psychotherapist through psychoanalytic ideas and concepts.
8: And those concepts, just to to get on to to Freud, they're based on Freudian theories?
7: Well, they're based on the work of Freud and his colleagues that came after him.
8: And just to get back to basics, explain the basics of Freudian thought, if you can do so, very simply.
7: (laughs) Would you like me to stand on one foot? (laughs) Pretty much. Freud, as a person who originally began work as a conventional biological psychiatrist. He found that this didn't help his patients that much. Then he studied hypnosis, and he worked as a hypnotist. He found that his patients could do just as well by talking as they wanted to talk, talking freely, as well as being hypnotized. And Some people couldn't be hypnotized. And from that, they came what he called the talking cure. I explain in my book, the hidden Freud, that every person, very famous psychiatrist, has a famous patient. He had many famous patients, one of whom was called Anna O., oh, a Jewish woman who had been deeply distressed after the death of her father, whom she was deeply attached. So just by allowing her to talk freely, she overcame many of her difficulties. And from this he developed the idea that if you allow people to talk freely and look, listen to them, what we call the third ear, the ear, and the ear that listens as a space between words or a connection between words, uh, many of the underlying difficulties that they have. Uh, and what came out of this was a psychoanalysis, a study not of the mind, as people often say, a study of the soul. Psyche means soul in German. Uh, and a lot of things then developed from there, a study of relationships, we can talk about psychoanalysis being the science of subjectivity.
8: Wow, so lots of digest. You, you um, wrote a book, The Hidden Freud. You had a specific interest in Freud, although you say there were lots of analysts after him. You had a specific interest in Freud. What was that based on? Why did? What made you want to write about him?
7: Well, uh, it's easy to say, because back in the 1980s, I was asked to give a talk on Kabbalah, Kabbalah and psychoanalysis in the Leo Beck Institute. Having studied then connections between Kabbalah psychoanalysis and studied Kabbalah for some years, I came to the conclusion that psychoanalysis is essentially a form of secular Kabbalah. Now, this is a kind of a contradiction in terms because you can't have Kabbalah without God, nonetheless. And the way it developed, psychoanalysis developing many of the methods and ideas in Kabbalah, it essentially evolved into a secular Kabbalah.
8: It's very interesting that you're putting together Freud, whom we all think of as completely secular and an outside outside God, if you like, and yet you've written a book which explores the Hasidic roots. How did we even have Hasidic roots if everything he's about is born from the secular, not from God?
7: That's why I wrote the book. That's not <laughs>
8: <laughs> How did you make that connection, though?
7: Because in researching his background, I found out that his previous biographers... They all missed the essential parts of his background. He actually came a deeply Hasidic background, a deeply religious background, and his mother's sign, his father's sign, and his wife's sign. His wife's grandfather, for example, was the chief rabbi of Hamburg. His wife's mother was so religious that she wouldn't even have a glass of water in a house that wasn't completely kosher, wasn't Grot Kosher. <laughs> From this, we can assume that at least in the early days of their marriage, they kept kosher. Because otherwise, Martha, his wife, wouldn't have visited the house very often. And we know she, she did.
8: But how would that have affected his theories and his writing if all of his ideas were were secular?
7: All well, his ideas weren't secular. You're talking about someone who had a background. He was Galician, a Jew. His parents came from Galicia. In those days... When Freud then moved to Vienna, Galician Jews were looked down upon. It was like they're dirty, they're unkept, they're poor, they're they're dangerous, so forth. This, this is how they looked upon uh, Jews at the time. The uh, German Jews looked upon the Galician Jews. So he tried to hide this uh, his background. He wanted to be an eminent German doctor, eminent German professional, and also this is uh, to to work and live in Vienna. And when Freud was just beginning in the late 19th century. So he had to hide his background in order to get on as a German professional.
8: And to what extent did this background then influence the way he, had, he wrote, he thought, and he practiced because he was dealing with people all the
7: time? Well, that's the whole point of, one of my book to show that his background, he actually came from a Hasidic background, he came with a deeply mystical background. His all his grandparents, his, his great grandfather, his grandfather, and his father were all Hasid's, and then uh, he was totally immersed in that. We, we now know that he was a Hebrew scholar in the gymnasium. He won all the awards. Uh, his, at home, his mother only spoke Yiddish.
8: So, how did he bring that obviously very deep rooted Kabbalistic knowledge into his work that you said was Kabbalah minus
7: God? I think that it came out in many ways. One of the first major works was called The Interpretation of Dreams. And The Interpretation of Dreams is really an autobiography of himself. And it's littered with Yiddish and Hebrew phrases and ideas and methodology of his dream work. It's similar to a kind of Kabbalistic methodology study of dreams.
8: You're coming to JW3. What are you doing there? What brings you there?
7: I was asked to give a talk in my book, and (laughs) a lot of people are quite surprised or astounded to understand or to to read uh, that uh, Freud had a religious background and a mystical background. And the point of the book is to demonstrate this, to bring it out into popular awareness, and to show that through psychoanalysis, Kabbalah extended itself into Western culture.
8: And for those people who aren't familiar with Freud, with any sort of analysis, who is your book aimed at? Who did you write it for?
7: Both a professional and a general audience. I think that people who aren't familiar with it would still enjoy it. And I explain the terms as I go along. Hopefully I write in a way which is not just for a professional audience, but is accessible to everybody. So that would
8: be anybody who's not in therapy or...
7: <laughs> it would be a good, anybody who's not a therapist, who's not a patient, and not a cabalist, like yourself.
8: Absolutely. I've always wanted to know how does a person know that they're going to need therapy, and why would they turn to this particular type of therapy?
7: Uh, a person has to be in a mental pain. Some people call it sickness. I don't agree with that. I think you use the term distress. The stress can come for many reasons. And the, a person can go for help. You don't have to go to a therapist. Have help when you're in distress, emotional distress, but some people do.
8: So people tend to think, possibly wrongly, that the Freudian type of analysis is kind of, you're going to slag off your mother and the family. I mean, that's the cliche, isn't it?
7: Well, I, I think, apart from slagging off your mother <laughs> or your father, uh, as a result of being in therapy, you'll come to love your mother and come to appreciate what she's given you.
8: And do you find that uh, Jews and therapy tend to go together? Did there tend to be more Jews event- than any other type of minority? Yes. If people want to pick up a copy of your book, how do they do that?
7: They go to the Carnac Bookshop on, in Swiss Cottage, or they can get it through Amazon.
8: And if anybody wants to come and, he- come and hear you, come to JW3, are there tickets left? How do they go about getting tickets? Uh, just call
7: JW3. Also, I'm giving a talk at the Freud Museum in Swiss Cottage on the 28th of January, a panel discussion, Is Psychoanalysis a Jewish Science?
0: Author Dr. Joseph Burke speaking to Kate Fulton there about his book, The Hidden Freud, His Hasidic Roots, and his forthcoming appearance at JW3. Of course, for more information, you can always go to the JW3 website. That's jw3.org.uk, and he'll be appearing there on the 17th of January. If you would like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, 25-year-old James Morganston has recently won Hertfordshire's Young Entrepreneur of the Year. This because his company... Ideal Insight has secured a major contract with possibly the biggest brand on earth, Google. Community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out why he won the award and more about the man himself. She started by asking him to tell us about when he founded his
9: company. I was 21. I started it a couple of weeks before my 22nd birthday, so close, yeah.
10: Right. And is photography in your genes... So to speak,
9: <laughs> not not so much, actually. I always used to really really enjoy taking photographs. It wasn't really until I went travelling and saw the way in which one could sort of create a business from it, which I'd really ever thought about taking it down the professional route. Prior to that, I was when well, I went to Nottingham University, studied industrial, economics. So not really the traditional (laughs) photographic route, but there you go.
10: Had you done it as a hobby?
9: Yeah, I did it. Just for fun, really. Just taking pictures of different sort of landscapes, friends, portraits, and just piecing it together. I think it's quite a nice creative outlet, to be fair.
10: Where did the idea spring from to do this type of photography? I mean, did you notice there was a gap in the market?
9: Yes and no. So essentially, what my company... Idle Insight does is we now produce 360 degree Google virtual tours which is effectively bringing Google Street View within businesses so that wasn't where the idea started from the idea started from was when I went traveling I just graduated university I went traveling I brought my camera kit along with me and whilst I was traveling throughout South America I crossed paths with a Swedish photographer who was doing virtual tours to partly fund his travels throughout South America so he showed me some pretty crude back at the time because we're talking four years ago techniques to create virtual tours and from there I took what I learned and carried on my travels partly changing sort of virtual tours with the accommodation or the tour providers and it effectively paid for my travels. So whilst I was traveling I sort of just thought there's surely got to be a business within this, back at home, within obviously a much more developed countries. So I originally started thinking about doing it for, you know, homes and properties. And when I was researching about effectively, I just thought about the application of what Google Street View was. And I thought surely businesses could benefit from this technology within their premises. And long story short... I found a way to reach out to Google. A couple of weeks later, whilst I was driving home, one day I received a call from Google Bulgaria and they wanted to speak to me regarding the idea which I had. How did they found you? Well, I wrote to them through basically a Google contact form. Because it's such a long time ago, I can't remember the exact route and I get this question the whole time, but it's really difficult to know the exact place I posted. I know I did a few. Somebody called me up and they were really keen to discuss the idea and they were looking for a partner to beta test it with. After quite a few conversations, we got to talking and I was invited on board to beta test their technology to do it so for three months I would be giving them sort of feedback on what I thought could improve the process and they'd be coming back to me and saying would this help would this be better blah 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 things worked out well and Google gave me a commercial license three months later to go out and actually promote it to businesses
10: and you are the only firm that does it
9: no I'm not the only one now I wish I was sadly so there are quite a few now companies doing it because of the way which Google works, they can't grant one company sort of the exclusive rights to something. It's giving away sort of the monopoly to the market. So, And to be fair, that's fair enough.
10: But the reason you're in the news this week is that you've won an award for the from the government or you or rather last year you won an award for the go it's nearly a year ago isn't it actually
9: Ooh, depends which award we're talking about
10: we're talking about the award for the innovation and excellence within the creative industries
9: yes yeah, so that, have you
10: won another one since then <laughs>
9: won another one since then yeah so that was actually this time last year i was invited uh, to downing street for a meeting of to some extent leading figures or people making their mark or doing well within the creative industries photography being a notoriously very difficult one to stand apart within they obviously took notice upon what my company was doing invited me down i met with george osborne i met with a load of incredibly talented people so that was a lot of fun in darling street for the day more recently just six weeks ago i won the Young Entrepreneur for the Year Award. So that was obviously very nice to be wow, awarded actually. with.
10: And were these monetary awards?
9: I wish. No, they're, they're just... They're not. Uh, no, sadly not. They're just... You've just they're, got a little they're, plaque. They're just tokens, you? yeah. So I've got right. a nurse plaque. For the more recent one, they spelt my name wrong, but there you go. It's quite a difficult oh name. <laughs> oh,
10: I don't know. Let's see where I should be. I love your website, particularly, I have to say, because one of the businesses that... I mean, you, you do... It seems that the website concentrates to a certain extent on restaurants and pubs and another another business that wasn't anything to do with that, actually. <laughs> but one of the restaurants was my top favourite restaurant in Covent Garden so called Clos Maggiore. And I thought, ah, what a clever man. He's got my favourite restaurant on the <laughs> website.
9: Yeah, Clos Maggiore is a beautiful, beautiful place. They actually are a restaurant which gets some of the most proposals within the uk i believe is what they told me at least it's unbelievable inside obviously you know like you know uh, marriage proposals just because of what it looks like inside
10: proposal that doesn't surprise me
9: yeah (laughs) that doesn't surprise me yeah marriage proposal should have said yeah (laughs)
10: well well done james really well done thank you for coming
0: thank you very much for inviting me in james morgan stern the Hertfordshire's young entrepreneur of the year for 2015 talking to community reporter diana toman
11: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are community volunteers Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschkorn. The subject for this edition is Tikkun Olam, or Making the World a Better Place. Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, as we've been hearing throughout the show, has visited some of the most poverty-stricken parts of India this week in a bid to highlight those considerably less fortunate than us and to encourage the community to do more to try to help those in need. But what can and should we, the Jewish community, be doing to help those who need help the most?
4: Andesha, we'll start with you. We do an awful lot, especially in my synagogue, with collections for homeless for food banks and all that sort of thing so we can only do so much it's an insurmountable task to look after everybody and everything you have to limit your resources and limit what you can do you can't open it to absolutely everybody as much as we would love to but
11: you for example do an awful lot of doing things for people in need don't you
4: I do, but it comes from within, doesn't it? And that's practical. It's not, it's not a financial thing. It's not anything else. It's a practical thing. And I also get feedback from that. I get a response from that. Well, that's exactly what the Chief rabbi is asking us to do, isn't it? Don't you think? I'm not sure, because he's asking us to go abroad and look at other people. I personally think that charity begins at home. Liz, you know, what Maybe do you Israel. Thinking?
12: Well, I think, yes, as Andy says, it does begin at home. And I think also doing things for Israel. But I think it's a a never-ending thing, isn't it? And I think it's more than just raising money. It's actually giving your time, going to visit people, helping people do shopping. And the synagogues, I think, are a great sort of the heart of this. It's I very think interesting that you both system.
11: say this, you see, because I remember, and I, unfortunately I can't remember the name of it, but there's a very, very famous Jewish charity, which was fantastic because everything it did was not for Jews. It was for everybody else. And they went and did work. They gave money and they went and did work for other people. Exactly what the Chief Rabbi was asking I,
13: for. I think that is taken olam. To me, that's the true essence of Tikun Olam because I think we sometimes get too caught up in our own worlds, our own Jewish world. And I think this often causes problems with the outside world because people often think, oh, the Jews keep to themselves, they keep the money to themselves, they only do things for themselves. And I think Tikkun Olam is such an opportunity for every Jew to get out there and actually show... We care about the world. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about Jews.
12: But we we do, because whenever there's a catastrophe somewhere in the world, the Israelis are one of the first to actually go there. And it's true that we do tend to raise a lot of money for Jewish charities. But then who else does? Oh, absolutely.
13: I'm not saying exclusively we should go outside, but I, I think we should definitely have as much focus on the outside world as we do on Jewish issues? Well,
4: I think we do, and especially sort of at times like Christmas and, you know, when the staff that need the time off from work... The Jewish people, a lot of Jewish people go into hospitals and things and they help and do what the normal staff would do. Obviously not qualified nurses, but they do meals and they do all sorts of things. And we do meals on wheels. There's an awful lot of things that Jewish people do. It's part of their neshama, I think, because they do... I think it's inherently built into us to do voluntary and social work. I don't know why, but I, I just think that
13: we do this. I think that's quite interesting as well, though, that you say that, because Tikhan Alam originally, I think it's it was in the Mishnah like, a couple of thousand years ago where it was first mentioned, was based on Jews being able to sort out things like a get, social injustices within the Jewish community. It was just It was just focused on internal issues just to fix things that socially were broken sort of in the last 40 50 years and, and and strangely it all ties in with the kind of the 60s and 70s peace and love where and Alam had uh, sort of rejuvenated again and it's now become more like a humanitarian attitude so it's almost not really that Jewish anymore because humanitarianism is such a big thing and and it's I wonder if, if part of that change in Tikkun Olam has something to do with guilt. Because I know a lot of humanitarianism from sort of Western culture is based on guilt from slavery, guilt from oppression, guilt from colonialism. And I wonder if that's why Tikkun Olam is where it is. It's spread out outward so much.
12: I think in times of need, people do rally round. So, you know, when when things happen, I mean, like with the flooding, for example, you know, so many people have volunteered to help clear up people's homes and, and offer them a place to sleep. And, you know, so when when there's so much going on in the world, I think it, it does bring out some good in people. You know, it's easy for people to make a donation. You know, most people, they're quite happy to give a small donation or a big donation, but to actually get out... And do some actual things to help people. That's That's much harder to do. But it's what the Almighty said, isn't it? He said that all
11: these people are my people, and you must help all these people.
4: People are happy to put their hands into their pockets. This is fine, but there's not enough people actually physically doing the work. People need to actually get off their bottoms, and it's not always the money, you know, because there are a lot of people out there that cannot afford to donate. Any amount of money, but they are happy to give their time. It's also donating your time to be able to help people, you know. But the other thing is going back to the floods. The Israelis have actually come over and helped the people in the floods, mm. which is phenomenal. You know, they're the Israelis, always the first people. Why don't the
11: Israelis make more publicity
13: of that? I mean, it's good PR.
4: It's excellent PR. Same in ha-
13: Haiti. They're the first people there. They set up a, a portable hospital with well, the Israelis. So they have also got a great number of uh, Syrian refugees living
11: yes, in Israel at absolutely. the moment absolutely.
4: But this never gets publicised. You know, they do an awful lot and There's, it doesn't get publicised. I wonder
13: if that's something to do with the fact that we keep hearing the term a light unto the nations. But that light unto the nations is often not by force. It's just by example. And I I get the feeling that this whole idea of the Israelis going out and helping, they don't make a big thing about it for that very reason that it's just setting the example.
12: That is the essence, though, isn't it? When you do good deeds, you don't actually broadcast them. You just do them. But
11: in terms of Israel and the press that Israel gets, I think it would be a very good idea if this were made more public.
12: It doesn't so, does it? Because it's always the negative that we hear on the news about Israel. Well, exactly.
11: But it, it couldn't be negative if if it were made more known that the Israelis were doing these,
13: that, these things. Couldn't that be seen as the, that we're doing it for the wrong reasons then, that we're just doing it for, well, exactly. for show and for... It, it'll and, get
12: twisted exactly. somehow to, to something So maybe like we that. are yeah. better we'll off. It.
13: Just doing this it without it. making a big noise about there
11: it. There
12: must be a reason for it. And uh, to be honest, that makes a lot of sense, mm. what you've just said.
11: Well, we should all be doing it, not just Israel. And That's not, right. Everybody should be doing it, whether they're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever mm. they are. They, they should be going out and helping other people. But very few people do.
12: No, I think people do. I think generally people are good and helpful,
4: more than not. I think I, it must be.
11: I still think it's a minority of people.
4: I think you're quite right. It is a minority of people, but there are more and more now people coming in and doing things for other people. I we think don't it's always a growing hear thing. everything no. that, that everybody but it, everything. It's like It's like Mitzvah Day, isn't it? If you think about yeah. Mitzvah Day, that has now spread from being an American Jewish thing. It's now spread to... All sorts of people. And
13: that is the perfect example. It really is. Of Tikhan Olam, of tik and being a light unto the nations, is doing it by example.
9: Absolutely. And others
13: following, but seeing th- this is the right thing to do. Yeah. So, Maybe yeah. we're being a bit provincial about this
11: because oh. the chief rabbi has gone to India to help the poor in India. Now, I'm not suggesting everybody here should get up and go to India or go to Pakistan or go wherever there is trouble. But isn't it necessary to do more things around the world to help to make it really seem that life is better with your help.
12: That's, that's a beautiful thought but it's very idealistic. I've actually, I have been to India and I've, I've seen the beggars and I've been chased by the beggars and it's, you know, where would you begin? And what do you do? You know, if you're if you've got your life here, what do you do? Give it up
4: and go there and try and no, help? No, but you
11: can still go and try and help. Do a bit for, say, a week or two or whatever.
4: It would be better rather than actually going out is to teach the people there how to help themselves. That how is ticking along. Well, that's exactly
13: it. That's one of the highest levels. How do you do that? How do you do that?
4: Well, you have to obviously have a certain amount of people who are trained, farmers and Anybody, nurses, doctors, anybody who is able to show people there how they can do and what they should be doing, you know, how they should be doing it. Growing crops, having clean water. They need to be shown so that they can then carry on and do it for themselves. And
13: this is exactly what we heard earlier in the programme from the woman from SEDEC who said exactly that. The, the way that we can move forward is to support people in helping themselves. And if you help one person that, to be able to help themselves, they'll help another 10 people, and, and so it goes how on. how do
11: we actually get down, to the ordinary people like us, how do we get down to doing that?
12: It needs to be organised, though. I mean, we've always said that, that that's the way to help people, especially, you know, where there's famine, to teach them how to grow crops and how to look after themselves. But that needs to be organised. That has to be taken in hand and still needs finances to get that going
11: well you it's interesting you say this because prince harry recently has been going around the world doing just that he's been going around helping people in difficult circumstances and helping them to get better and do things for them and to show how to do things so if if a, if a prince can do it why can't People with children who have their gap year, if you like, say to their children, go
13: and do this. I think well, he's a got people, a bit more time and do. money to do it, though. Than and most and of they us. do
12: show celebrities going to various areas and, and doing some good, building schools or, or whatever. But, so there there are these great examples, but then they're, they're not always being followed by everybody.
4: And there are a lot of kids who go on their gap year, or who used to go on their gap year, who actually did do that. I know a couple that one was training to be a nurse and she went out to some godforsaken place in Africa. And she was helping people with with AIDS and stuff like that. I know two or three people that have done that. I think people are getting put off by it, though. I think so. I think so. On the
12: other hand, when
11: you think of all those, this awful illness which was happening in, in, I can't remember what it's called. Ebola. 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 Yeah. What about that? Because there were an awful lot of people, medical people, nurses and doctors who went out to... Places like Nigeria. It wasn't Nigeria, was it? It was was the uh, was West West Africa, Africa, Senegal and Senegal. Places like that. They went there and endangered their own lives.
12: I think that does put people off. And also, when you apply to go to these places, they give you such an extensive list of vaccinations, and and not all of them are that necessary. And these sort of things put people off. I think, or or people are becoming more selfish. But isn't
13: this? exactly the reason we're here i know it's it's getting a bit deep but isn't tikkun olam a whole reason for being because i personally think it is because looking at it from a biblical perspective i mean adam and eve adam sinned and the world became a very different place and there are thoughts that adam had to sin so that we had a reason to be here to fix the world. So everything we do is actually trying to achieve that Garden of Eden status of this paradise. So, so what you're
11: really saying is that Judaism is tikkun olam, humanity. Is, in fact, the olam. whole world is.
12: I do feel as part of being Jewish, that is part of my purpose.
11: Well, that's a, that's a very good point of which to uh, end the discussion. I think you you. Nailed it, absolutely. And so my thanks to all three of you, community volunteers, Andy Lucas and Liz Heshkorn, and of course, Adam here with me. And now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from
14: New North London Masorti Synagogue. I'm a great believer in miracles. I'm not sure they're the same kind of miracle as the Torah describes in these coming portions, which talk about the 10 plagues which God brought upon the Egyptians when the children of Israel were slaves in that strange land. The interventionist God, who with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand delivers our people from Egypt. This God is part of the history, the narrative, the story we tell in our longing for salvation. But even in the classic commentaries, The rabbis didn't want us to be distracted in our faith by such miracles which stop the very flow of nature. Rather, to the classic rabbis of the Talmud, the important miracles were the miracles of every day. God as God is in our world, the God of whom we say in the morning prayers, God renews each day, the work of creation. So the miracles I believe in are miracles so often before my eyes. The coming of the snowdrops in January. This year is a little bit strange with daffodils up too early and in an unseasonable and disturbing manner. But the coming of the snowdrops, the sweet scented blossoms of winter, a sunset at half past four or five o'clock where the West is red And dark, the bark of a tree in winter, sights that may be as near to us as a few meters away and can make us stop and say, Beautiful, wonderful, a mystery that holds us with a sense that life is precious, sacred that it all somehow matters and is united by a life being, a force that flows through us all. This is the God who inspires awe and wonder and love. In these miracles, I am a deep believer. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg
0: from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Jude Williams, Dr. Joseph Burke and James Morganston, Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschhorn, who were on the schmooze, and of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to include the team as well as our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.